Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to talk to author Chris Turner. He's a National Business Book Award winner, and he's the author of the new book, How to Be a Climate Optimist. So welcome to the interview, Chris. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Now, I'm really excited to talk to you about this uh, book for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is which you're a damn good writer. I, I've always ad- I've admired your writing for, for years uh, on things as esoteric as baseball, for instance, another passion you and I, you and I share. And, uh, and I want to make that point here because too often books about the energy transition or climate change are kind of dull and, you know, they're, this is good reading. This is like, you know, a series of magazine articles. And I'd encourage uh, listeners to pick it up because it's not, it's entertaining as well as insightful. And there's a very, very good argument uh, that I think is, is worth talking about. We'll be talking about it today. And before we get started, I want to make, I want to make another point is uh, I first uh, ran into you in 2012 when you were running for the Green Party in, in Calgary in the provincial mm-hmm. election. I interviewed you then. And despite the fact that we run in many of the same circles and basically our beat is the same, we've, this is the first time we've actually talked. Yeah. Yeah. We've sort of, we've sort of been in each other's shadows quite a lot, but uh, there we go. So it's it's lovely to finally have a chance to sit down and have a conversation with you. So how to be a climate optimist, Uh, tell us how to be a climate optimist. What's the book about? Uh, Well, basically at its core is uh, I guess sort of an argument or an analysis of the last uh, 15 years that I've spent uh, on my kind of, you know, self-created journalistic beat, which uh, I call the climate solutions beat. And it's a thing that I didn't, you know, I didn't have any uh, uh, clear program or of attack or anything when I was looking at writing a book on climate change uh, 15 years ago, 17 years ago, I guess now. Uh, I thought, you know, th- we've, we've, th- we've got enough forensic analysis of the problem and, we've, and, and it's deepening and we know it is, it's a crisis. And there's lots more of that. And the sort of under-discussed piece of the, 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 the puzzle is what do the solutions look like? Where are they? How are people using them? What kind of world does it lead to? And the optimism comes from being you know, this far down the line now uh, and finding you know, my expectations exceeded. The expectations of lots of expert analysts exceed, uh, exceeded. The thing's really working. It would be very hard, and I, you know, I say this in the book, if you know this far down the line, I had to look back at you know a, a road littered with failure. If you know solar hadn't turned out to be a mainstream energy source, if electric vehicles turned out to not be viable, what I, you know pick your thing, it would be a very hard case to make. But it's actually a pretty easy one and getting easier. And I feel like too often in the climate discussion, there's the talk of you know we need to we need to start doing something. When are we going to do something? We've been doing things. Not, not, you know the collective we the the world has been developing this pretty extraordinary toolkit. And it's really quite an exciting time to see these pieces beginning to come together in a way that, I mean, a lot of them, you know, as I, I say in the book, are the better choice 
even if you discount the emissions piece of it, even if the point wasn't to reduce emissions to as close to zero as fast as possible, these are better ways of doing things. And so the optimism kind of grows naturally uh, out of the subject matter, in my opinion. And, and, and it really is, I think, a missing element of the, the, whole, the, the whole transition. There's a lot of understandable focus on here's the problem and here's how we have to fix it. And it's hard and, and getting harder. And you know, we, we don't always hit our targets and not enough of, but actually we're, we're doing some things extremely well and it's getting easier. Uh, and you know, some of the worst cases are, are off the table now and that's great. One of the points that I make uh, quite often, and uh, listeners, some of the listeners who uh, may be bored about this all the time, but I think it bears repeating, energy transition scholars and writers often talk about how technology uh, diffuses over time on an S-curve. And the beauty of what, I mean, the relevance for the, the conversation here is that the front part of the S-curve can be quite long. And in this one, uh, we're talking about technologies like solar panels and wind turbines that got started in the 70s and 80s, the lithium ion battery that was introduced in 1991, the first commercial uh, EV prototype 1990. I mean, these technologies have been gestating for like 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. This is a wonderful, you know, one of those overnight successes that took was four decades in the making. Then you layer on on top all of the other enabling technologies that make this work like artificial intelligence and machine learning and data and sensors and analytics and on and on and on. I mean, it, cameras, uh, add it all up. This is a technological flourishing. It's like a renaissance. And a lot of it is going to be applied to energy. And this is, and I'm with you 100% on this. And as it, getting back to the S-curve, if the first part, the first 40 years, let's say, is a gestation period, we're now in the disruptive decade. All this technology is becoming competitive. It's starting to push out the old technology and it's disrupting everything. With the oil and gas industry, I mean, you live in Calgary, you know this as well as I do. And, and it's crazy. And, it, and it's going to be like this for another 10 or 15 years. But when we get out the other side of this, when, when electric vehicles are dominant, when wind and solar are dominant and batteries, there's a very cool society waiting for us. There is, yeah, and it and it corrects a whole bunch of errors that are you know maybe aren't the core of the thing, which is reducing emissions. But you know you basically look at you know twentieth century industrial society, some of its excesses, some of its wastes, the fact that you know most power grids until very recently were virtually identical to something Edison would recognize. You know, it 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 was very dumb technology in a lot of ways. I mean, yes, incredible sophistication to deliver the amount of energy and the you know, load balancing and the rest of it, but it was, you know, one-way power flows, big, you know, central hub and spoke, that kind of thing. This is just one example where we're learning, you know, so quickly how much better we can do these things and, and how much, you know, uh, more efficient everything can get. And what that means for, you know, average folks is, you know, regardless of where you stand on how aggressively we should be pursuing climate targets, wouldn't you prefer to waste less, you know, waste less energy if you could and pay less on your bills and, and that sort of thing? So there's really, like the, the as you say, as this stuff gets this to this disruptive phase and starts to combine in ways that create, you know, what I call in the book this value proposition for 21st century living, it's just better. It it, it just fundamentally is. You no longer have to make the case that you know here is a thing we have to do 
because we have a problem to fix, even if it does things maybe not quite as well or quite as uh, uh, simply as previous. No, it's it's actually just doing things better now. And and you know, you pick your example. The the Tesla cars is a great one where Tesla isn't you know the, the the a zero emissions vehicle. It's the best car on the road. Right. It's not a faster horse. It's not a faster Chevy. It's it's a it's a whole new whole new beast unto itself. Now, look, one of the this conversation so far, we're five or six minutes in. And we're having a we're having a conversation about climate change and the energy transition, but this doesn't really reflect the character of your book because your book is really a, a series. There's lots of anecdotes in there, you know, where you talk about your own experiences, and and one of them from the first chapter was about being on a Spanish high speed train and how that in, influenced uh, the way that you thought about possibilities, how we could do things really so much better. Tell us about that story. Well, so that, that, there's an example. I went to Spain in, um, it was 2009, and Spain had just finished its first big phase of high-speed rail build-out. I'd never been on a high-speed train. Before. I mean, I'd been on the German ICE trains, which are sort of previous generation high-speed, but not the, the super-fast bullet trains. This was my first super-fast bullet train ride. And you, know, you get on at the coast of Malaga, and you're going to Madrid, and you cover the distance, which is like you know six, seven hundred kilometers in three hours. It's extremely comfortable. And the what really struck me the more I thought about it was not only is this like you know really nice way to travel, trains are nice, whatever. It was doing it was doing it was better than driving by a long shot, better than flying and having to you know go through security and all that by a long shot. But it was also you know just I mean what struck me was never before in human history could you as sort of a random citizen propel yourself across the face of the earth at this pace. This, this was a market improvement on how we move people around to the degree where, and it's a great example because high-speed rail is still treated like this, this, you know, sort of luxury. Oh, I guess, you know, Europe does it a lot. China's doing a lot. Japan has bullet trains. But as soon, it's one of those things where as soon as people get a taste of it, you would not ever choose another method of long distance transport, uh, at least with, you know, at the length that it works. Well, in particular, in your case, because uh, as I recall, you were sitting there with a, with a glass of sherry reading a book Indeed. for most of the trip. Yeah, which is you know vastly preferable to to just about any other way to do it. Yeah, it, I mean, it was just you know you could kind of look around and go, wow, it's amazing. It's three hundred kilometers per hour. It's a super smooth ride. Uh, at one point, I, I you know the, when a, when a high speed train cro- you know, passes another high speed train heading in the other direction, there's this weird sort of thunderclap thing that's really you know like it's a, a, there's a little bit of a thrill ride to it. But mostly, it's just what a what a great way to travel. I'm 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 enjoying this. I'm gonna get to my destination feeling refreshed rather than exhausted. This is this is so much better. You you mu- it must have been like the first farmer who got in a bottle T and uh, didn't you know wasn't on a horse or a buggy. Was yeah, or dri- imagine. Was the first farmer who, who saw a combine at work and thought, well, there's like months of backbreaking labor being done, you know, by a machine in a moment. My 96 year old grandmother from uh, a farm on Nippon, Saskatchewan tells me stories like that all the time. Uh, what in the first chapter, oh, sorry, in the first section of the book, how to be a climate optimist, you talk about embracing dark euphoria. What is that? Mm-hmm. So the phrase comes from Bruce Sterling, a uh, sci-fi author and futurist, uh, one of the the sort of founders of the cyberpunk uh, movement, the guy who's thought a lot about what technology does for us. And he was giving a talk, it was, you know, uh, more than a decade ago now, but it really, he was c- kind of trying to describe what is the, what is the vibe of this age we live in? And the phrase he came up with was dark euphoria. Dark because things were, you know, even though technology was doing amazing things, it was, there was a lot of darkness in the world. There was a lot, you know, a sense of, you know, uh, collapse and decay, Certainly, you know, in 2022, I don't have to even 
say anymore where you know, pandemics and, and wars and the rest of it, and then the climate crisis, you know, sort of overarching all of that. But at the same time, uh, there's a euphoria to, to our ability to do things. And whether that's, you know, attacking the climate crisis or, you know, convey information or, you know, transport people, you know, from one place to another, we're also in an age of extraordinary technological change. So much so, and this is you know, the, the point I take from Sterling and expand on, that we treat it almost immediately after we experience it as commonplace. We don't actually stop and think, you know, it's ridiculous that I carry more computing power than the world has ever seen in any generation previous to this in my pocket every day. Well, I, I appreciate that because I'm every, every day when I go out on my electric bike, I think of all the, you know, the, the times when I was a kid and didn't have one, you know, I had to, had to actually have a 10 speed instead of a, this amazing technological machine that I'm riding around in, you know, considerable comfort in our little town. Um, let's talk. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. Well, we're on the subject of optimism. Uh, Sandy Garasino, the National Observer columnist and I are writing an op-ed about how all of this, the very thing we're talking about it needs to be communicated to today's youth mm -hmm. because there's a profound sense of climate ennui, uh, you know, just angst mm -hmm. over, over, you know, this is the world you're giving me. I'm going to, you know, this is, I'm going to have my, my world is going to be full of, you know, droughts and, and climate failure, uh, you know, crop failures and wildfires. And this is the world you, you know, and, and yet there's, as you and I agree and Sandy agrees, we're heading into this, you know, almost a, you know, an electric utopia, this mm -hmm. you know, new utopia. And we haven't communicated that to those under 30 or under 40. And, mm -hmm. and I think we should. And what does your book say to today's youth? Yeah, well, I think the, the central message uh, begins with actually my, my uh, epigraph, which comes from Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark where she talks about, you know, it would be better if we were astonished all the time. And she's looking back at, you know, if you think about the sort of mid-century of, of the 20th century with the, the scale of war and destruction and, and, and uh, genocide and, you know, the near collapse of the global economy and on and on, it looked really, really dark then. And yet, you know, a couple of generations along, you know, as, as she says, the, we, we experienced things in, you know, in our everyday life in plain sight that would have just astonished people uh, a generation ago. And I think we've lost that ability to communicate that sense of wonder, I agree, in part because perhaps understandably, we're also still coming to a full realization of the scale of, of the disaster we've created. So it's understandable that there's a lot of you know, there's the, this moment of realization that the relatively stable climate that, that we all grew up in, if we, you know, older, older folks uh, like us anyway, is, is no more. And there's no getting past that. That's, that's an absolute truth. But we should never lose sight of the fact that we are also, you know, a very, very clever species that can, that can fix it and make it better. Now, because you live in Calgary and because you have written about many times about the uh, Canadian oil and gas industry, about the Alberta oil sands, uh, tell me if I'm correct in when you look at the, the, what's going on globally in, in the energy transition, especially how it's accelerated in the last three or four years, it's breathtaking, mm -hmm. but that is not being, uh, it's poorly understood in the, the, you know, the office towers of downtown Calgary, where the oil and gas companies uh, do their business and, you know, the culture around, around energy in Alberta, it's like, you know, it's uh, 10 years behind the times, five years behind the times. They just don't get what an existential crisis this is potentially for the Alberta oil and gas industry because of, 
you know, for instance, the rate in, at which the automotive industry globally is uh, is electrifying. Right. It, it, would, it, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say there's a handful of things happening at once. Um, so first of all, I mean, it would depend on which office tower you're in. Um, there, are, there are certainly some you know, major oil and gas companies and executives at those companies and even some of the smaller ones that fully understand that this reality is not the one that generated the boom that, you know, the, 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 the com- you know, coming in the first decade of the millennium. Um, there is still a lot of uncertainty, though, and I can understand how they would look at, you know, sort of long term uh, uh, projections in terms of energy needs and demand and, 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 and current supply and say, well, there's still going to be, you know, tens of millions of barrels of oil delivered to, to, to most of the world for a few decades yet. Natural gas has a maybe a more precarious position, but also a lot of really good short term prospects. So we're not, you know, we're not running for the exits yet. So let's let's not let's not get carried away here. Um, that that realization, I think, is there in some of the long term planning of the bigger oil majors. Uh, but certainly as an industry, you know, from the, you know, from the, the, the front ranks all the way to middle management up to, you know, toward the executive suite, maybe not a full realization of how big the disruption is, is likely to be or how, how near term it might be. And we actually saw this with the coal industry, which absolutely 10 years ago thought its position was quite comfortable. The, the, the world, particularly the developing world, couldn't, couldn't, you know, couldn't get more coal fast enough. Uh, and so, you know, who cares if there's a little bit of environmental consciousness seeping in that's causing coal plants to be closed in certain European countries or whatever, because there's a, there's this robust market out there. Uh, and that has turned out not to be the case. I mean, the U.S. is the great example of that, where they had a, a brazenly pro-coal president and saw nothing but steady decline in the coal industry for the entire time he was president. This is, this is going to sweep over them, whether they think it's a good idea or not. And I think that's coming slower and is a little less immediately fatal for oil and gas because they do still do things that, that you can't immediately substitute out uh, something else for, whereas coal, you, know, you burn coal for electricity. If there's another way to generate electricity, you don't need the coal anymore. Uh, but I think there, there is, a, I mean, certainly what you see even here in Alberta is a recognition that they're going into more of a steady state than a growth phase. Uh, you don't necessarily hear that from politicians whose jobs they feel like depend on promising that, that the next boom is right around the corner. But nothing like what just happened in the last 15 years is ever going to happen again, I don't think. And I'm not sure that's fully been absorbed in cities like Calgary. Although there are you know, more people here who get it than you would think. Well, let's hope that uh, your book is a huge bestseller in Alberta and Texas, because they certainly need, need to hear the message. Well, look, let's talk about the second uh, section of the book, the long looping, less bad learning curve. What the heck is that? So what I mean by that is when we realized, uh, you know, when, when it became apparent to a lot of decision makers and, and business leaders and the rest of it uh, and civil society generally, the scope of the climate crisis, that this was, you know, potentially existential crisis, that it was deepening quickly, that we were already into, um, you know, a, a very different sort of climate reality than had, than had previously existed for most of the time back to the ice age, uh, the last ice age. Uh, uh, the first thing we did in a very kind of classic environmental uh, action kind of way is, okay, what are we doing that's wrong? How do we do less of that? How do we do less bad? So cut emissions, how do we cut them? Okay, we can marginally cut emissions this and that way. We can introduce a little bit of renewable energy. We can you know, improve efficiency this and that way. We can start playing around with the idea that at some point we're gonna have to capture emission, emissions or whatever. Uh, but really all we were doing is in these, and I think it was a necessary phase, in these silos, you know, whatever industry it was, whatever business you were in, whatever community you lived in, what is the, you know, what is the low hanging fruit to make things less bad? And that was how we built the toolkit 
that, I, that is now driving this energy transition. But it's now in a very different phase, the much better phase as I describe it, which is that, that you know, these things are now uh, you know, working, you know, sort of across the old silos, you know, finding synergies, improving, you know, uh, economies of scale, all of that, all of these sort of classic economic things that drive huge disruptions and transitions, that's all now beginning to come to play. But for the first long phase of it, not only was the technology still, you know, we didn't know which things were going to work better, which would get most affordable most quickly. You know, when I, the, the first thing I describe in the book is going to an electric car show in Montreal in 2000. And at that point, the hype was all on hydrogen. A lot of people thought you'll be driving a hydrogen car way before you'll ever drive an all electric. So we, you know, there was a learning curve uh, there as well. Uh, and that also came with a, there was a mentality I guess, sort of a collective mentality of, uh, we're not sure how serious this actually is. Is this really going to change the way I live every day? Is this really going to change the way, you know, my business operates at a foundational level? Maybe, maybe not. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to jump all, all the way into it. We're now, I think, really into this, you know, full jump. Uh, this is the way the world's going. And, and there's really no stopping it. Tell us about the uh, epiphany at the Cafe Einstein. Ah, yes. So the Cafe Einstein is a uh, elegant little cafe on Unter den Linden in Berlin. Uh, it's right across from where all the MPs have their offices. And I went there to meet back in 2009 again, same trip uh, as the high-speed rail trip. I met with Hermann Scheer. And Hermann Scheer was one of the co-authors of Germany's Renewable Energy Act, which basically drove the first phase of the transition, among other things, is pretty directly responsible for making solar power cheap. Bunch of other stuff as well, but if you look at you know the signal achievement of that, don't even look at German emissions or whatever else. It made solar power cheap, and and uh, and Scheer was a really really interesting character. He was very different from most of the sort of climate hawk type politicians. He was definitely not an Al Gore type. He didn't speak in sort of you know soaring uh, idealistic rhetoric. He was a in a lot of ways kind of a, a you know, backroom brawler of a politician you know, gruff old social Democrat German politician who basically, you know, saw all of this pointless debate about who's going to generate less emissions on what time frame was pointless. What you needed to do was build a better industrial basis for society. And that's what that would, that drove why Germany did what it did, which included, you know, to some economists' uh, 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 tastes, far too much subsidy for solar, for example. It didn't make any sense if all you were trying to do was reduce German emissions. But Scheer saw a big picture. He wanted a global renewable energy industry and, and was, among other things, was the architect of the, uh, or one of the prime movers behind IRENA, which is the International Renewable Energy Agency, which is kind of a, a, a sidekick to the International Energy Agency. He just, he was an incredibly profound big picture guy who really understood, you know, political realities, strategy, tactics. He, he, it was this one hour conversation I had at the end of which I thought I've just talked to the most important strategist in, in climate politics I'm ever going to meet. Yeah. And the most important one well, that uh, maybe not, is he well known outside of uh, Germany? Uh, in certain circles, he's, he's uh, he passed away, unfortunately, uh, a few years after I spoke to him, he, he was, you know, he won that right livelihood award, which is sometimes called the alternative Nobel. He was recognized as a major player in, you know, propagating the renewable energy industry and the rest of it. Uh, but he was never, you know, he was, he, he never held a cabinet post. He was, you know, never in line for chancellor. He was a classic backbench 
uh, MP who was just very, very smart about what he did. And so certainly, you know, well-known in Germany, well-known in, in certain kind of climate and energy circles, but what you know, never achieved the fame and renown of, a, of an Al Gore, for example. Well, let's talk about something that you and I write about often and uh, tweet about even more probably, uh, and that is uh, climate politics. And you've got a chapter called Political Will is Not the Easy Part. Explain that, please. Yeah, so this uh, grows out of uh, you know, credit word to David Roberts, formerly of Vox, now sort of does his own thing. One of the smartest kind of commentators on Agreed. Uh, climate Agreed. politics and, and, and energy policy and the rest of it. Very smart guy. And years ago, he would he, he started in on this. And, and it was a thing that I was noticing, too. You'd go to these you know, sort of big conferences and someone who was very engaged in, in sort of climate politics would sort of get up and say, you know, we have the technology. We know we can reduce emissions. Here's how we can do it. All we need is political will. And Roberts's response, which I echo, is political will is not the easy part. It's not the, it's, you can't just grab it off the shelf and throw it in your cart at the end. It's the whole ballgame. If you have no political will, nothing is going to move. It doesn't matter if your solution's better or more just or more righteous. It's the thing that actually moves the bar. And that doesn't mean that politicians necessarily lead. They, they often follow the, what, what they think people want or, or, or their backers want or whatever. But you ha that has to be, and it, it's, the, it's the foundation for all the rest of it. And you see that, you know, where are the leading jurisdictions? You know, Germany was not blessed with great solar um, uh, uh, resources. Germany was not, you know, coming into this was not a country that was, you know, particularly, I mean, you know, strong green conscience, but mainly rooted in an anti-nuclear movement. And it was building the political will, you know, house by house, uh, solar panel by solar panel to become now, you know, one of the, the acknowledged leaders in this. And certainly, you know, they, I mean, someone like Angela Merkel, who was a conservative, deeply skeptical of the energy transition in opposition, becoming the climate champion of Europe. Uh, was, you know, is an example of that political will, will, you know, coming in full force. Well, what about, how do we apply that to North America? And I think particularly uh, you live in a jurisdiction that's more akin to, to Texas in some, in some ways, uh, where uh, folks are skeptical about the energy tra transition. I live next door in British Columbia, which is more akin to California, where the, the political will uh, in some respects, I think was higher. I'm not sure it has all the political will it needs in here in BC, but it certainly, I would say it's higher than, than Alberta. And yet Canada still, you know, in, in our parts of the world, kind of lag, I think, uh, arguably, uh, other, you know, a more uh, progressive, more uh, ambitious uh, era. But where I'm getting with this, Chris, is that we're not just talking about mitigating climate change we're not talking about just adapting to a new you know energy system that's emerging there is a new economy emerging and if if we don't get with it if we if we don't make the transition if we don't uh if we don't build an electric economy or an electrified economy and a low carbon fuel economy capital will go other uh, elsewhere and we saw that uh, only a couple of weeks ago in ontario windsor uh, lost out on a two and a half billion dollar uh, investment battery plant from LG Chem because their electricity system couldn't keep up. Yep. And if you don't, if you aren't prepared for the 21st century economy, then capital will flow elsewhere and the jobs, the good jobs, the uh, and all the spin-off benefits will go will go elsewhere. And so part of having political will is understanding that there is an economic dimension to this in addition to climate and, and the energy transition. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and an economic dimension, and, and that's not even just the profit and loss of any given company. It's job creation. It's it's you know uh, you know where where people want to see their investments go. That sort of thing. Uh, I think we're in 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 North America generally, Western Canada certainly. We're sort of in the early bit of the disruptive phase. You could argue, yes, Europe's five ten years maybe ahead. That the, you're seeing much more sort of thoroughgoing changes to the way big energy companies think, the way your governments think uh, there. But at the same time. This thing is is you know in a sense sort of chaotic enough that that, that interesting opportunities arise and I'm thinking right now, uh, I, for sure last year I can't remember if it's the last two years by far the single best jurisdiction for for uh, renewable energy development was Alberta, uh, and that was not because you know they, they they lobbied particularly well to to get more solar panels and wind turbines but because Alberta has a deregulated uh, energy system, and so it's just a lot easier to get you know, wind turbines and solar panels connected to the grid. Whereas in British Columbia with, with sort of an old uh, 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 state captured monopoly, there's a lot less will uh, to to invite yeah. new new players into the game. And so for example, you know, the, the, the single largest solar farm in Canada is being built right now in Southern Alberta and its main customer is Amazon. Um, and it has nothing to do with uh, any particular government pushing in any particular way, other than that there was at one point the will to deregulate. Uh, so it is the, you know, there are things that happen. I wouldn't say that's despite political will, but where um, the, the, the intentions uh, of the initial political decision weren't, weren't to invite large scale solar farms, but that's what's happened. So it is, you know, so there's a disruptive phase. What I'd like to see, for example, in Alberta is the, the, the industry that's growing around these opportunities become a bit more of a force in the room when whichever government of the day is making decisions. But it is interesting that even with a provincial government that includes, you know, uh, people who, you know, won't, you know, won't, won't sort of say, uh, you know, we'll, we'll never be at a ribbon cutting for a solar farm. Uh, it's still happening anyway. Um, so it is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things happening at once. And, and part of that, though, also to get back to the political will question is uh, Alberta's decision to phase out coal, which was, you know, pushed by the federal government, but then, you know, the NDP government of, of Rachel Notley ushered it further along. They didn't actually do a spectacular job of specifically inviting, you know, renewable energy players, but simply by, by virtue of making the phase out reality and getting it underway, it's created these opportunities. So there is always some sort of a political calculation or political decision that, that, that that's enabling a change, but that change, you know, in this disruptive phase, it's, it's a little unpredictable. Let's talk about the third section of your book, the much better decade. And the first chapter in that section is the view from quarantine as somebody who our, our household, again, getting back to my 96 year old mother-in-law who we wanted desperately to protect from, from COVID-19, you know, we've been isolated for the better part of now probably 27, 28 months. So you can imagine the view from quarantine caught my attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was, uh, similarly, you know, uh, we have immunocompromised family members. We've been very cautious, maybe not quite as cautious as you. I'm not sure. You know, we do have a kid going to school and, and, and that sort of thing. But uh, I, I think it was not a bad place to do a stock taking. Uh, it kind of forced everyone to, to, to maybe you know, slow down the, the, the pace of their lives in, in, in a lot of ways that weren't all that nice. Uh, but my, you know, my initial intention with this book was to do quite a bit of travel and to revisit some of the, the, the places that, that, that I'd reported on you know, a decade ago to see how the transformation was going. That was off the table, but it also let me kind of uh, uh, think through where we are right now. And that's where this, this idea of a much better decade comes from. There's you know, an, a 
uh, even though the pandemic is continuing to kind of kind of grind on, there is, I think, a bit of a mood uh, for for change. It's not all at once. It's not this huge explosion. It's not suddenly the Roaring Twenties. But there is a, an, an emerging sort of sense of, well, you know, it's okay to do some new things because a lot of the old things weren't working that well. And then more than that, it's, you know, as, as we've been talking about, the last couple of years have been so quick on the, on the climate solution front. Um, I mean, the speed with which we went from, uh, you know, Tesla and a couple of the major automakers, you know, talking a little bit about electric vehicles to all of these promises that by 2025, this proportion of our, of our production will be, be all electric. And uh, like the, the, that, that acceleration, I think you can really, maybe the view from quarantine gave me an opportunity to really feel it like that, that sense that, oh, this is all going much quicker than, than, than even I realized in the midst of it. I hadn't, you know, sort of stopped to look around and realize, oh, we're, you know, like the, you know, the, the scale of, renewable energy development and, and the, the, the fact that we're now talking about gigawatt scale off for wind, uh, uh, which had been promised for about 10 years in Europe and is now actually happening and on and on. Like there's just, everywhere you look, it's it, not only is it moving much faster, it was accelerated in some ways by the uh, pandemic. There was a point in the first phase of the pandemic where the single largest energy company by market capitalization in the United States was a wind, wind, wind and was a renewable developer, primarily wind. Right. Let me t tell me about um, where life and energy transition Disneyland sounds like a fascinating place. <laughs> uh, yeah, the energy transition D Disneyland is an island off the coast of uh, Sweden called Bornholm. It's part of Denmark, but it's nearest to Sweden. And basically Bornholm for the last 15 years has been the test bed for the next generation grid that's eventually going. I mean, the intention was always, could we make this work at national scale? They've proved it in Bornholm. They're gonna build it out across Denmark. And it's, a, I think, a prototype for what we're gonna see more and more of, the, of this next generation of grid look like as we as we realize the infrastructure requirements that, that, that are shifting as we fully embrace the transition. So basically in Bornholm, you have, you know, uh, already the majority of power is coming from an intermittent source, wind, uh, intermittent renewable source. Uh, already you have, you know, many, many homes uh, uh, connected to district energy systems for heating and that sort of thing. But also, they, you know, as part of the, the test, they looked at a, a lot of other ways of, of heating and cooling uh, uh, buildings, um, uh, rollout of electric vehicles with the assumption that eventually, you know, private owners will create a large enough fleet that this will be a sort of a, a distributed battery pack for the, for the renewable energy. And more than anything, what they did was you know, demonstrate the viability at an everyday level of a predominantly renewable energy intermittently powered grid, uh, that that will work fine. You won't have uh, rolling blackouts or whatever the, the sort of doom sayer said was going to happen. And more than that, that there are opportunities uh, that for example, if you were an electric vehicle owner and your car spends most of the day parked somewhere, you could plug it back into the grid and provide a service to the grid that's worth money. Uh, so you, you know, when you're sitting there in, in Bornholm, which is a very pretty little agrarian island that lots of people treat it as almost like Copenhagen's cottage country. It's a place you go for the weekend and that sort of thing and, and, and sit by the sea and have a drink. Uh, but like you know, the, the, the uh, opportunity that's emerging there is, is uh, uh, much bigger than I think than, than they initially uh, expected. Initially it was just, you know, maybe we'll, be able to, to try out some technology and now it, it feels a lot more like this is you know, it's, it's it's sort of sitting in a in, in in a better future uh when you're visiting well speaking of better future um you have a couple chapters on one on the electric age 
one on the new industrial age. And this really intrigues me because more and more, I think we're recognizing that electricity is the foundation of the 21st century economy. And furthermore, that the, the industrial ages we've had before, starting with the industrial revolution in the 19th century, but then we've had other, you know, some, depending on who you talk to, the, the you know, the dot-com boom, the internet age was a, a one and the digital age and so on. Um, so are we now in the electric age? And what does that mean for the new industrial age? Yeah, I think we, we are, in fact. I think it's sort of the early days of, I'm not sure... You know, I'm sure there are, you know, historians and and, and uh, uh, technicians who would argue, you know, specific, you know an, an, an industrial the industrial revolution meant a specific thing that this doesn't. But yes, we're absolutely heading to an age of of uh, ubiquitous electrification. So the, in in most places, in most businesses, in most communities, the single biggest transformation that will occur as part of this energy transition is that more and more things will be electrified. Your, your home heating and cooling through a heat pump that gets its power from the grid, uh, your car that plugs in rather than requiring fuel, et cetera, et cetera, electric buses on down the line. But what we're also seeing is that's moving beyond just, you know, sort of home scale stuff. You're seeing, you know, uh, electricity being used to make steel, electricity being used to make uh, aluminum and, and so on and so forth. So it really is this, this, you know, thoroughgoing in you know economy-wide transformation, and incidentally, is the kind of thing that that if, if we were better at talking uh, about this in Canada, particularly at a national scale rather than a regional or provincial scale, we would recognize Canada has this massive leg up uh, on most of the world in that most of our grid is already clean electricity, eighty-two percent, I think, and that's not because we were so clever about it; it was because we have such an abundance of hydropower. But we are already in that phase in some parts. Quebec, Hydro-Quebec already sells itself to the digital world as your, your way to, you know, have a clean data center, your way to, you know, manufacture what you need or, or, or run the software you need without creating emissions. That's already happening. That's not, maybe this will one day happen. Yeah, I, I've, I've interviewed a number of battery manufacturers and other, uh, you know, uh, automotive technology uh, developers. And, and we, it always comes back to, uh, well, where are you going to locate this plant? Well, we need abundant, cheap, clean electricity. And uh, one fellow, uh, they were, uh, his company uh, was developing uh, silicon anodes, and they had just cut a deal with uh, Mercedes-Benz. It was, the interview was last week uh, for anybody who wants to go on our YouTube channel and take a look at it. And uh, towards the end of the interview, I asked him very specifically about citing you know, their, their plant in Washington state, which they did because of access to, to, uh, to hydropower. And he also said that he, when I was with Tesla, hear that a lot these days, when I was with Tesla, that was the number one, uh, you know, when we went to check the boxes for a site location of a plant, that was, that was at the top of the list. And, and I, yeah, and, and you also, and you see it in Quebec, since you brought up Quebec as an example, you see a lot of investment going in there, you know, battery plants and, and battery components, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, Apple is sourcing all of its, or not, not all yet, but the intention is to eventually source all of its aluminum from a smelter in Quebec that's there right. so that it can draw off the clean grid. But I want to, I want to raise a hypothesis with you. And that the hypothesis is that our success in the 20th century, elect, building a 20th century electricity system is actually going to be an impediment 
to building a 21st century electricity system because we've we've developed these little silos. Uh, electricity is the is a is the provincial jurisdiction. Many of the provinces uh, we have these crown corporations that are very uh, the uh, turf jealous and they're stodgy, stodgy <laughs> conservative, risk averse. And they're very, very good gatekeepers. It doesn't matter which political party is in government. They're very good at keeping out. I mean, you look at British Columbia. When the BC, the NDP government there, which came in, ran on a climate platform and, has, and brought in this clean BC, is a very progressive and aggressive climate policy. And when they went to do, you know, include BC Hydro in the planning process, BC Hydro took nine or 10 experts, you know, people like Mark Jacquard and or Mark Jackard and, and Blake Schaefer, well-known economists in Canada. And they went and did all the planning behind closed doors. And it wasn't a public process. And then there have been all sorts of criticisms of their in, integrated resource plan that they, they but there are, we have uh, old timey uh, systems that are going to need some redesign, some rejigging to make them work in the 21st century. And I'm not sure that we have really grasped that fact yet. Yeah, and, and that's a huge point. And it gets, I mean, it gets very wonky very fast, but you know, uh, there's a reason, and it should be to the shame of the rest of Canada, that Alberta is the place that, that, that is seeing the most renewable energy development. And it's, and, and it's simply for the reason that there's no giant incumbent blocking blocking people from the grid um this shouldn't be a thing that alberta leads i mean we do have very good resources excellent wind and solar and, and the rest of it but it's really just the deregulation and then if you get past that so there's the, one part is like who gets to play uh, on the grid but for example uh, uh germany again you know leading jurisdiction there are parts of northern germany now where you have 60 70 percent uh, uh wind power uh penetration on the grids when they did the, this big innovation sandbox in Schleswig-Holstein, uh, one of the, one of these northern states, they basically let a bunch of technology companies and utilities and everyone kind of play around. And even in Germany, which is you know arguably a decade or so ahead in terms of regulation and legislation, the rest of it, all all the the, the messaging that came out of that was the technology is really good and works. It's getting better. There's definitely some problems. You know, and this was doing things like how do you get if you've got wind suddenly like wind suddenly kicks up and you have this surge of wind onto the grid. How do you immediately find spot markets for that in, in at you know the local aluminum plant so that it, it gets delivered at a, and you don't have to just dump uh, excess power uh, onto, onto a neighboring grid at below, sometimes below zero, sometimes paying people to take the power. What do you do? And what they found was we can solve that technologically. We don't have the regulation and the, and the, and the pricing systems and everything else to make it viable for the, for the for the players. And so the recommendation that came back to the state and federal governments in Germany was, you guys need to rethink how you, you know, how you develop and process and, 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 and price power in an entirely new way. And I would completely agree with you. Those are questions that the big old hydro companies are not going to be great at answering right away. And that would be a thing if you're the sort of person who, you know, talks to your, your, you know, local representatives about energy issues to bring up is, has, is somebody talking about, you know, the regulatory reform we're going to need for, for, for this energy transition. Well, speaking of the age of transition, that's the, the title of your last section of your book. Um, how, what can you tell us in just a couple of minutes about that? Uh, I think the, the, the important thing to take from that is that there is uh, uh, the years to come and we're already in them, are already more transformative than the years just passed. So the, the 10 years that got us to here, the 15 years that got us to here, we're, we're as I call in the book, a prelude. 
we were just figuring out what works and what doesn't and, and what, what our needs were and where the tools were, were, were best put to use and the rest of it. This is going to be a very exciting time. I would say in not, not, in, not directly parallel, but maybe analogous to the arrival of digital communications where we very quickly went from a phone that was a thing attached to a wall and a television was a thing that had three channels and you watched whatever it threw at you to this digital world we now live in, I think the energy world is going to see that kind of transformation. The, the fact that you'll have, you know, the opportunity to generate some of your own power, the, 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 the fact that you, you know, if you have an electric car, you might become, you know, a power broker delivering services when you're not using it. Um, some of the stuff that can start to happen with smart appliances and, and AI, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence, which I would never claim to fully explain, but certainly has opportunities in terms of automating and simplifying the way we do a lot of these things that, that are going to be absolutely extraordinary. In the mid middle of that as well, we also know as we confront the climate crisis, and this is one of the, 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 the notes I sort of end on, we still have a lot of inventing to do. There's still a big chunk of the world's emissions we're not entirely sure what to do with. Are we going to suck carbon dioxide directly out of the air? Uh, are we going to figure out some other way to deal with excess carbon dioxide? Are, are there, you know, are we going to have nuclear fusion in 15 years, and then that will be uh, the, the 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 thing that, that that handles the sort of uh, last chunk of, of of our energy needs? All of it's on the table, and that's exciting. In the same way. You know, in retrospect, if you look back at the you know, sort of second half of the 19th century and the level of transformation, the thing actually that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Vaclav Schmil, the somewhat skeptical energy transition historian at the University of Manitoba, talks about that, you know, the, your, your life in 1800 looked a lot like someone living in 1200 the tools you use, the rest of it. And then by 1900, you could travel in a locomotive at 200 uh, kilometers an hour. That's the kind of potential trans transition we're, and, and pace of transition we're seeing here. It's a very exciting time. It's scary in a lot of ways. It's going to be happening in the midst of deepening climate chaos. Uh, and so it may not always look euphoric, but there is a pretty exciting thing happening. And I think the, the you know, there's a, 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 in the book, I cite one of the architects of the Paris Agreement, 2015 Paris Agreement, where, where she said, Laurence Tubiana of, of, of one of the big French NGOs, and she says, you know, when we decided what mechanism we were going to use as incentive, we decided against penalties. We decided that was too complicated. We just wanted this sense of, you know, sort of inev inevitability around the change and that that would drive the next phase of the transition. I think she's been proven right. They've been proven right. That that turned out to be, it was way more valuable to have everyone willing to buy in, even if the targets weren't binding, even if, you know, the initial phase didn't see sudden drops in everyone's uh, uh, greenhouse gas curve because the momentum is there now. And that age of transition is very much about that momentum reaching full speed. Well, that's a great note on which to stop. And be, before I let you go, Chris, you have to tell uh, our listeners where they can buy your book. My book is available, of course, online. Uh, you can certainly get it at Amazon and Indigo or go to, you know, if you're in Canada anyway, go to your favorite indie bookseller and, and, and they should have it on the shelf. And it uh, makes a lovely gift. Well, Chris, thank you very much for this. I really, this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I'll probably have you back at some point to talk about Vaclav Smeal. I'm sure we could do a, a half an hour or an hour on old Vaclav. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for this. Really, it was, it was lovely uh, chatting with you. Great conversation. Thanks for having me.